just going to ask one question that I, I mentioned it last week. We actually got to talk about it in RCG. But it's a question that I'm going to kind of just intro with, and then we'll kind of get to it as we go through. But are there things in our lives that might challenge our view of who Jesus is? is there, are there things in our lives, circumstances, challenges, good, bad, ugly, are there things that challenge our view or that challenge any beliefs on certain characteristics of God? Are there things that we think, how can God be good if this? How can God be just if this is happening? How can God be sovereign? How can God be in control if this is happening? And I want us to continue to ask this kind of as we go through today. Um, just in our definition, our definition of who Jesus is, our definition of God's character, what kind of challenges are there? What are we challenged to believe? What are we challenged not to believe? So we're starting Matthew 11 today. Going to do 1 through 19. It's probably the biggest chunk of verses that I've done in a while. So bear with me. I, I found myself reading it. I'm used to short chunks, so I like, don't have to worry about breathing in between reading these verses. And as I was just like reading through these out loud, I was, it was amazing how that was challenging for some reason. Bear with me. Verse 1 in Matthew 11. And I apologize, nothing is on the screen today. Sorry. Failure on my part. Verse 1. Don't shake. What? You're forgiven for now. I'm forgiven? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. If not, I was going to have you come read these. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He had a demon. 
The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Okay. So, brief, like, two-second background. John is in prison. If you didn't catch on to that, he heard, he heard in prison. John saw the immorality in the life of Herod, called him out for it, in prison, with really zero hope to get out of prison. Like He knows what his sentence is. He knows that he's going to die. And I've heard people say, especially with what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks with like doubt and fear and that we have hope or we are not, we're called not to doubt. We've been talking about these kind of things in the midst of persecution and whatnot. But I want to point out that John does not seem to be doubting God's word. John is not doubting what God has said. But John, in his current circumstance, is just questioning his understanding of the word, of these promises. Because John was preaching this message of repentance. He was preaching this message that says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at near. So he was preaching God's blessing on those who repent and God's judgment on those that did not repent. He was pointing towards Jesus. And so John, in prison, is questioning, well, what's going on? I'm in prison. Uh, I'm preaching this repentance, and things aren't working out too well for me. But also knowing that John's questioning, he's also limiting. He's not, his questions are not in this eternal scope of, those who repent will be blessed and those who don't repent will be judged. I'm going to read Isaiah 35, 4-6. Again, I apologize, it's not on the screen. But it's Isaiah 35, 4-6. I'll give you a second if you are flipping there. This is one of the Old Testament prophecies that said that when the Messiah comes, this is what... This is what things are going to look like. Things are going to be different when the Messiah comes. When the promised one comes, things are going to be different. Isaiah 35, 4-6 says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, and with the recommence of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute man sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. This is one of those promises that when the Messiah comes, this is what it's going to look like. But our present circumstances, our present experiences, all too often can exert a very powerful impact on how we view God. Because John's present circumstances in his eyes did not line up with these promises. There's other prophecies that says, when when the Savior comes, when the Messiah comes, the captives will be set free. Which John, in prison, it's, it's hard to fault him for wondering about this, for questioning this. 
We've already seen Jesus heal two blind men in Matthew 9. Matthew 8, he cleansed a leper. Matthew 10, he gave his disciples authority over this and said, now go out and do these same things. And Jesus is going to continue to do miracles like this. I don't want to affirm that Jesus, that John was right in questioning, but he did go to the right place for when he had questions. He didn't stew. He didn't just ask every one of his friends, well, what do you think? Surely, surely my interpretation is wrong. Surely something's going on here. But he sent to Jesus. And when we have doubt, when we have questions, when we have concerns, that is something that that God has promised us, that God has given us, given us prayer to be able to go to Him with questions, with concerns. Philippians 4.6, you don't have to flip there, but jot it down if you're taking notes. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. That He is the one with the answers. John was questioning his interpretation. John was questioning... Have I been telling people wrong? Because he's been proclaiming the one to come is Jesus. The one to come, when Jesus came to be baptized by John, John said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold, He's coming. So John is not doubting God, but he's doubting His view, which are so greatly affected by His present circumstances. And I think all too often, as my iPad goes crazy, all too often we are affected, we are scared, we are intimidated by the thought of telling anyone about Jesus. And I think all too often we get nervous about this, we get worried about this, Because we realize that we might not have the answer that to the question that someone asks. We think, I I don't know how to answer that. I I didn't go to seminary. I don't know those big words. I don't know what sanctification means. I don't know what justification means. I don't know what glorification means. I don't know what all these big words mean. Don't ask me either. But this is the one thing that a lot of people say, like, I'm terrified to go ask someone, especially nowadays that you see so many people that say, I don't believe in Jesus and this is why, and they're equipped to give you their answers on why they don't believe. John continued to call people to repentance, although he did not have all the answers. He didn't know all the deep theology. He, He still had questions, which we saw him ask. But he knew God's ultimate commands. He knew God's ultimate desire and his promises to send a Messiah. But I think the way that Jesus responded to John's disciples coming and asking him questions is huge. It's so important. Because the the parallel account in Luke 7 to the same passage says... In that hour, they came and asked him the question, are you the one to come or should we expect another? Luke 7, 21 says, 
In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go, tell John what you have seen and heard. In that hour, John came questioning. And Jesus said, Look who I am. Look at these promises that I am fulfilling. We just read that passage from Isaiah. In that hour, it says, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. He, he gave people their sight. He, he was displaying, this is who I am. You don't have to know the theology, but this is who I am. In the same way, we don't have to know theology. It's great. People don't want to study it and know it. I think that can help in a lot of circumstances as you're talking to various people, but we don't have to know theology to tell people how wonderful Jesus is. We don't have to know theology to be able to declare how beautiful and how much Jesus has changed our lives. John 9 has been one of my favorite passages for quite a while. In John 9, Jesus heals a man who's blind, he gives him sight, and he does so on the Sabbath. Pharisees Frustrated Pharisees come to him and say, this guy is not Jesus because if he was, he would be respecting the Sabbath. This man is a sinner. This man is a man. And they go and they question this man and he kind of says, Jesus changed me. They go, to his they go to his parents and his parents say, we don't know what happened. We know he was born blind. Go ask him. So as the Pharisees go back to him declaring that this man is a sinner, Listen to what this man who had been healed, listen to his response. This is in John 9, 25. The man says, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The man didn't know theology. He, didn't, he couldn't prove that Jesus was not a was not a sinner based on the Old Testament. He didn't even try. But he knew that he was changed. He knew that, that Jesus had radically changed his life. He knew what Jesus had done for him. Followers of Jesus, Christians, we... Jesus has done something beautiful in our lives. The Bible says that we were dead, but now we are alive. If we are in Christ, if we've been saved, then Jesus has done something miraculous and beautiful in our lives. That's something we can talk about. That's something that each person, each Christian, each person who has been changed by God can talk about. Don't have to quote books of the Bible. Don't have to know theology. But you can talk about what Jesus has done in your life. Because when questioned, that's what Jesus pointed to. Look what I'm doing. Look what I'm doing for people. Look at the change I am bringing. Not just this physical, current situation, but I am bringing eternal salvation to them. I don't want this idea to be like too far out of left field, but I hope that more and more, I hope that more and more we're able to say, look what Jesus has done. Look at what Jesus has done. Look at the Old Testament. Look what he's done in the past. Look what he's doing in the, future, in the present. Look how he's working right now. That's just something that kept weighing on me this week. Just 
We don't have to be able to explain the small details, but we can all tell about what Jesus has done in our lives. And that's something to talk about. So going on to Matthew or verse 7. John's disciples leave and go back to report to him. And Jesus turns to the Jews that are following him, turns to the crowds that are following him, and, they, and he says, okay, so you went into the wilderness to seek John. What were you going to look for? He starts asking kind of rhetorical questions that he even answers. And looking at the entire scope of the New Testament, when Jesus starts asking rhetorical questions, probably not good. Because usually the answers he's answering are the ones that he's saying, you should know this, but you don't. He was pointing to the fact that John had come preaching a radical message. A message that says that I'm just going to disrupt the status quo. I'm going to disrupt what's going on because I'm preaching a radical message of repentance. But that's not what the people wanted to hear. Although he had gained a following, he also had people that were saying, no, stay away from this guy. The Pharisees had come and had really began to speak against him. But what does he say? But Jesus goes on to say about John the Baptist, who has just come questioning, and yet he says, This man, among those born to women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. And I kind of struggled with that for a little bit. I was like, This guy just came questioning. This guy just came not knowing all the answers. And although this is a huge compliment to John, I think it's pointing to something a little bit bigger than this. The least of those in the kingdom of heaven, those saved, those born again, using Jesus' phrase from John 3, those born again in heaven are greater than John. Because John the Baptist came proclaiming a message of repentance. He was paving the way for the one to come. And he was pointing people to another. But we are not preaching a message of one to come. We get to proclaim a message of one who has came. The fact that we get to proclaim this, that we're not paving the way for another, where we get to say that Jesus is the one who has come and has radically changed the whole landscape of where this world is going because he came providing salvation. Last week I said that living for Jesus means 100% surrender. It means that we die to ourselves, we die to our own desires. Because we're living for Jesus, we're not living for ourselves. And this is it again. What Jesus is saying is that we were born again through Jesus' death on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him 
who for their sake died and was raised. We as born-again believers, 100% surrendered to Jesus as Lord, are described as greater than John. Because we are proclaiming a Jesus that has come and has provided salvation. We get to proclaim this Jesus who has known each one of us intimately. A couple weeks ago we read that he knows the hairs on our head. We get to proclaim salvation, not of one coming, but one who is here. The people have continued, always have, always will, reject the gospel. We talked about this in the last couple of weeks quite a bit, of people that reject the gospel physically, people who reject the gospel and reject people in their families, people that are persecuted. But there's something that I mentioned last week and kind of where I started today. But that people reject Jesus because he doesn't fit their mold of what they, will, what they want. He doesn't fit their mold of how they want a God to affect their lives because Jesus has come saying, 100% allegiance, follow me. Pick up your cross, die to yourself. That's not what these people want. They want someone who's going to conform to their way of life, someone who's going to reinforce what they've always been taught because their religion, their religion is the most important thing. But John and Jesus kept coming and breaking the status quo. They kept saying, that no, that's not what it's about. It's not about that. It's about much more than your religion. If it, was, it wasn't as this, this was like a surprise. Jesus came and said, the kingdom of heaven has faced violence. But then he says, he makes a very interesting quote about Elijah. He says, this is Elijah. This is who this is. Because Malachi had twice promised that, that, that Elijah would return and point the way for Jesus. That he would come and pave the way. And Jesus here says, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who has come. He is the one who was pointing the way for me. He is the one that was pointing to salvation, was preaching repentance, which is exactly what Malachi prophesied that Elijah would do. He who has ears, let him hear. It's almost as if Jesus was saying, you're probably going to reject it too, but if you have ears, you should probably hear this. If you have ears, you should be listening to this message. John, the one who prepared the way, has begun to question, dealing with his current circumstances. Jesus then turns and calls out the crowd because they, were look, they went into the wilderness looking for the wrong thing, looking for reinforcement for their own preconceived religion, preconceived notion on what religion was supposed to look like. But now he declares that John has been... A, Extremely important in this whole process that John came pointing the way for Jesus. But I think a lot is summed up in this last little section. 
I'm going to go ahead and read verse 16 through 19 again. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For Jesus came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus compares the people of that generation to stubborn children who get upset when things don't go their way. I read into this a little bit this week, and the marketplace and this culture would have been the center for basically everything going on in the town. The parents would come and do the trade, do all their business, buy food, sell food, everything that went on in this center marketplace. And the children would also come along with them, and usually they'd be off playing together. And the two most common things that were always played was basically a mock wedding and a mock funeral because those were two big events in their, in their culture. Those are two long celebrations, not just day celebrations, but often like week celebrations or week mornings or longer. So what would happen would usually there's, everyone knows that that, that kid, the one that says, we're doing a funeral today and you all are going to go along with it. If not, we're not going to play together. There's always that one kid who's in control, who's directing everyone else. Some of us were probably that kid. I have my ideas on who those might have been. Not making eye contact on purpose. But, you see, that's what Jesus compares these people to. Those people that They want a God who they can say, I'm playing music for you, you're to dance now. I'm singing for you, you're supposed to mourn now. They wanted a God they could control. He's saying, saying, you're like little stubborn children who don't get your way so you don't want it. You're like the kid that says, things aren't going my way, I'm going to storm off to the corner and pout. Many people's disappointment and rejection of the gospel is based on this fact that they can't control it. It, Jesus doesn't say the things that they want want him to. He He continues to say things that are hard, that are difficult, that are countercultural. First Corinthians two fourteen. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul says that people aren't going to get this. People are going to reject this. People are going to not like it because it doesn't sound good to them. Because they're natural people. They're, they're, they're too worried about this world, this natural world around us. This is why so often when we pray for unbelievers, we pray that God would open their eyes, that God would open their hearts, that God would open their ears. Because if God is 100% in control of salvation, 
like we've talked about, if it's up to God for us to believe, then he's got to be the one to open our eyes. Then God has to be the one to allow us to believe. That is why we pray that God would open people's minds, open people's hearts to the gospel. Jesus says that no matter what, no matter who has come, people have rejected it. John came living the kind of an aesthetic lifestyle of not eating nice foods, not drinking nice drinks, wearing uncomfortable clothes, living out in the wilderness. And people have said he has a demon because he's living that way. Jesus has come living completely the opposite. Eating, drinking, hanging out with tax collectors, with people that the, whole, that the culture and world says are sinners. And people didn't like it because people continually wanted someone who would come and make life easy for them, someone who would come and not say such radical things, someone who would come and provide immediate peace, someone who would come and rule the government. We talked about that last week. But we, we, we talked about this in CG last week, but are there aspects of God's character that we struggle with? Are there aspects that say, God, I don't understand this. How are you good if this is happening? How are you just if all these bad people are getting very good things and living very well in this world? Do our questions about who God is, does that lead us to Him to ask questions? Or does that lead us to rejection of Him as Lord? Do we get tempted to make our own God? To leave out the hard stuff? To leave out the stuff that doesn't conform with the way that we want to live? Is that where our temptation is? To create a nice little fun, easy God that we can control? I think that's all too often a temptation to leave out the hard stuff. But we don't get to choose this. We don't choose who God is. If God is who he describes himself to be, we don't get that choice. But he says that he is absolutely everything that we need. Because we serve a God that created us from the very beginning. We serve a God that created us knowing the kind of lives that we would live, the way that we would reject Him, the way that we would chase after the things of this world. We serve a God that from the very beginning decided how He was going to reconcile that. We serve a God that kept calling people to Himself, promising this future salvation. We serve a God that kept sending prophets to His people and saying, return to me, return to me as people were getting deeper and deeper and deeper into their sin. We serve a God that kept making more and more promises about the Messiah that was going to come and provide eternal salvation. Not necessarily the immediate salvation that people were looking for, but the salvation that they needed so much more. We serve a God that designed salvation in a way that he is in 100% control and we don't have to rely on our broken, sinful flesh to save us. God continues 
to promise these same things. That salvation is through Him. That this is the God we serve. Are there things that are difficult to understand, difficult to comprehend? Absolutely. I don't even want to pretend that that's not real. But that if God is... Hmm? If God is who He says He is... then he is due 100% all of our allegiance. We all, whether we like it or not, continue to battle, continue to struggle with living like the world says we are to live. Dying to ourselves, I said last week, was a daily struggle. That we, he says, pick up your cross. Take up your cross. But we can't create our own God. We can't create this God and say, we play the flute for you and you did not dance. We can't say, we created you to act like this, so please act like I want you to. Please make me whatever I want to be. That's not at all what the Bible says. What we do, though, is submit to God. And rely on Him and Him alone for our comfort, for our peace, for our salvation, in the eternal sense of all three of those words. Our eternal comfort, our eternal peace, our eternal salvation. The last verse, the last part of verse 19 says, Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. All this is going to make sense. That every, everything that is true is going to be revealed. Those that follow a God they've made up, those that follow the ways of the world, that is going to be revealed. And the book of Revelation makes it sound like that's going to be really, really bad for those people. But if we follow Jesus, if we follow the God as described in the Bible, that's also going to be revealed. And if you look at Revelation, we, there's promise and there's hope in that. My hope is that our hope, that the, what, the one we look to, is the God that the Bible describes. And that when there are questions, when there are concerns, that we don't immediately run to Google. We don't immediately run to someone and ask, what, what's going on here? I don't understand this. But that like John, we go and say, Jesus, is this... What's going on? I don't understand. We take our concerns to Him. I pray that we would not try to change God's character or leave aspects out because we think we can control Him in that manner. But that we would praise God for who He is, what He's done, what He will continue to do. I really pray that that's where our hope is that we're not looking for the wrong thing. We're not looking to make our own God. We're not looking to trust in the God of the world, the God of money, the God of X, Y, Z, whatever you want to put in there. But that we would submit to the only God that is worthy of our worship. And I've said it a couple times, but John went to the right place with his questions. He had questions. 
He didn't hide the fact that he had questions. He was humble enough to admit that he had questions. But he went to the right place for answers. And I want to challenge you, whatever your questions be, whatever you're struggling with, whatever, whether it be, I don't believe in this God you're talking about. If that's what you're struggling with, then I'm glad you acknowledge that. If you're struggling with, I don't believe this about God. I don't believe this about God. That doesn't seem right. Go to God with that. Ask him to reveal to you the truth. I would love to talk to you about things like that, but go to God with it first. Talk about it over lunch. Talk to someone else about it. But at the end of the day, I hope that we all can say, let's figure out what the Bible says. What what does the Bible say about God? And let our answers come from here, not from Google, not from Yahoo, not from any other source that might be out there, books, whatever it be. Let's just ask that God would change our hearts and our affections to be towards him. Let's pray.